First John chapter two, we'll begin reading at verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we ask and pray that your people would not love the world, nor the things in the world. We ask and pray that you'd help us to be reminded of the things that last forever, and help us to be reminded of our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have been redeemed by he who is the word of life, that in him we have life everlasting, that in him and because of him we have union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. come from our own strength, but it comes first from your work. Thank you, O Lord, that you're the one who regenerates. You're the one who makes alive. You're the one who implants a new heart, a new principle in the hearts and lives of your people. You give the gifts of faith and repentance. And then as, the, as we believe, as we receive Christ by faith, you justify us, you adopt us, you are sanctifying us, you are helping us as we persevere. And where is that promise of glorification as well. And so we ask and pray that you'd help us in our Christian walk. Help us to flee temptation. Help us to flee sin. Help us to run from it. Help us to watch and pray and fight. Help us to know the proclivities that we have. Help us to know our own desires and temptations that are not good. And help us to be aware of those things. And help us, above all, to set our mind on things that are above. Thank you that we do so because of Christ. Help us not to sin with the world. But if we do so, help us to remember that we have the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for his high priestly work. Thank you for his dying for us. Thank you for his pleading on our behalf even now. And we ask and pray that we would set our mind on these things that are eternal to help us as we make our way in this present evil age. Help us to have a sober understanding of the present world. Help us to have a proper understanding of it as well. Help us not to love it more than we love you. And thank you so much that when we have times that we do, there is mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that your saints would be strengthened this day. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, show them that this world is passing away and may they believe by faith on the things that last forever. And we ask and pray that you would give us illumination from on high. You would help us to understand what your word says. Give us, uh, we pray that you'd open the heavens and come down, that you would speak to us in your word. You know what we need. You know what your people uh, require. And we ask and pray that you'd speak to us now in your word. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, there is a present tension that the people of God feel as we live in the present evil age. We have been redeemed. We are united to Christ. We have the heavenly benefits that we saw last time. We have forgiveness of sins. We know him who is from the beginning and we have overcome the evil one. We believe these things. We know these things and we have these things as God has laid them forth in his word. And yet we still live in what's called the present evil 
age. The already and there is still the not yet. We know that this world is not our home, yet we long for the fullness of the heavenly world to come in. We long for the fullness of the new creation to come in. So how then do we live in the overlapping of the ages? How then do we live in this present evil age? And there's been many responses throughout history. Some have said we must escape and flee the world. Some have said we must accommodate with the world and become like the world. Others say we must transform this present evil age. How then shall we live? Well, I think the command in verse 15 gives us some indication on what we must do. He says, do not love the world. We are to live in the world, but we must not love this present evil age more than we love God. And the reason he says that is because this present world is passing away. This present evil age shall be no more. One day everything you see shall be no more. But those who abide in the Father, those who are part of the Father, those who believed on Christ Jesus shall abide and last forever. And this is the assurance that John is giving to his hearers. Remember that this book is all about assurance. He writes that the people know that they have eternal life. And he structures this whole letter much like a sermon. And we are in point one of that sermon, namely walking in the lights, walking as those who are part of this light. And so he's given this assurance in verses 12 through 14. Here's what you are. Here's your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he gives an exhortation based upon that identity. Do not love the world. And the assurance is the things that you love shall be forever, but this world shall be no more. And so the problem is very clear. It's when we love the things of this world, we love things that are temporal, love things that shall pass more than the world to come. So an important question for us to ask as we go through these verses is, do we or do you love the world? Do you love the things of the world more than the things of God? Perhaps to put it another way, do you love sinning with the world? John here commands his hearers to not love this world. Then he gives several reasons why. So we'll look at this command to not love the world under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the command to not love the world, verse 15. Secondly, we'll see the character of the world, verse 16. And lastly, we'll see the end of the world in verse 17. So the command to not love the world, verse 15. The character of the world, verse 16. And then the end of the world, verse 17. Let's first look at the command to not love the world in verse 15. So he says very clearly, do not love the world or the things in this world. Again, he's building off the identity that he laid forth in verses 12 through 14. And so he has often spoken of love or will often speak of love in his letters. We saw what love looks like in relation to the commandments in verse 5 of chapter 2. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Later on, he's going to talk about the imperative of love in chapter 3 and then the outworking of what that love looks like. He says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. That's Christ for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He's teaching us where love comes from. 
and then what then love looks like. And he's teaching us what we, as the people of God, ought then to love. So then in verse 15, we see the opposite of that. What we are not supposed to love, what we are not supposed to set our affection on, and we're not supposed to set our affection, we're not supposed to prize the things of this world. Now, what exactly does he mean by world? Brethren, the Lord God created this world and called it very good. So there is that idea of the world that talks about the geography, that talks about what God has created. But there's another way the world is, the word world is used in God's word, and it describes those things that are hostile to the things of God. After all, this present evil age is called evil for a reason. It's an eschatological reference point. This present age, evil age, versus the age to come that lasts forever. And so he's talking about the character of this present age when he talks about the world here. Everything that's hostile to God, everything that goes against the divine, anything that is incapable of knowing God in a proper way. The Lord Jesus Christ prays in John 17, 9, I do not pray for the world, anything that goes against God. Certainly lay in John 15, 19, neither Christ himself nor his own belong to this present evil age. There's a difference. There's a eschatological reference. There's a citizenship idea that is involved. We're no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We have our heavenly passport in the Lord Jesus Christ. And James later on, very similar, or James in the book of James, James 1.27, describes what true religion is. And it's in similar to what John says in verse 15. But James says, what is true religion? One aspect of it is not being, uh, it's being unspotted by the world, not being allured by the world, not re uh, resembling the world in any sort of way. And so when he refers to world here, it's an ethical indicator. It refers to that which is sinful. It refers to that uh, which, which should be akin to that of the old man, which we saw in Colossians chapter three. This old man has been put off. Those who've sinned in Adam have been put off. Those who've sinned in Adam shall die as this present evil age shall be no more. We need the last Adam. We need a greater Adam, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says, don't love this world, what he means is don't sin with this world. Don't love these things that shall be no more. David Dixon says, by the world he understands the condition of unregenerate men wherein they please themselves and think themselves happy. By those things which are in the world, he understands the enticements or the good things thereof, wherewith unregenerate men are taken, such are pleasures, riches, and honors. To love is to prize and to affect. Could be the idea that those who are of the world only recognize that this world is all there is, and so rather than worshiping the creator, they worship the creature. Anything not God is the creature. Anything that's not from uh, anything that is not him has been created. And it is idolatry to love the creature more than the creator. And so he's honing in on the world's love of itself. He's honing in on the world's love of things that do not last forever. He's honing in on the world's sinfulness. So he says, does not love the world nor the things in the world. And then he says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a further test of assurance. 
Remember, this book is teaching us about assurance, but he gives tests for assurance as he goes through. He talked about the commandments of God. We're not looking for perfection, but if we love God, we'll seek to walk in his ways as he's revealed himself morally in the Ten Commandments. He talks about that in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Talks about light, talks about darkness, talks about tests. In chapter 1, he talked about the test of walking in the light. Well, A, you have to acknowledge you're sinful, acknowledge you need a Christ, acknowledge you need a Savior. That is a further test. The false teachers were saying they had, did not engage in sin and they were not actually sinful. So then he comes again here with another test. Do you love the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And probably what he's referring to here could be either the Father's love for us or our love for the Father. Both could be in view. Certainly the basis for our love for the Father starts, first of all, with his love for us. In 1 John chapter 4, we see that discussion about what love is god is love and how do we know love well god sent forth his son to be a propitiation for us we see love and we see god's love for us in the work of the son we see god's love for undeserving people in the sending forth of that second person to die on behalf of sinners but then also throughout the book he describes how we love god how we honor god how we glorify god and if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the things of this world, then A, the love of the Father, uh, the, the Father's love for his people is not in you, but also B, you do not then do and love what the Father says. If anyone loves this world, if anyone prizes this world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's those who won't relinquish their idols, those who won't honor him. God gives good things to this world, and rather than recognizing where that comes from, they worship the creature rather than the creator. So it's a test. It's something we have to examine ourselves, by which we have to examine ourselves. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, brethren, again, we're not looking for perfection. We're not looking, there is no perfection on this side of heaven. There are times where we're going to be enticed by the world. There are times we're going to be tempted by the world. But have we found our, and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we looked to him as our assurance and our foundation? If we have, we must flee these temptations. If we have, we must, as he says, verse 15, not love the world. Now, again, that command is don't love the world. It's not flee from the world. It doesn't mean go out into the bush. It doesn't mean go out and make your own community where everything's going to be happy and everything's going to be wonderful and nobody's going to sin. You see, brethren, the world and the flesh and the devil always lurk. And if you think you're getting away from the world, well, the flesh uh, is there too. And the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion. People think they can flee from society and everything's going to be just fine. There was the father, I can't remember his name. It's escaping me right now. But anyway, he went out into the wilderness because he wanted to get away from dancing girls from Rome. Guess what he thought about in the wilderness? 
dancing girls. You see, the flesh is always there. The flesh always lurks. The temptations of the world is always there. And so we must not love those temptations. We must be on guard against them, be watchful of them. Wisdom is required, but we must not flee into the desert. Certainly we don't accommodate the world. We don't say, yeah, we can do exactly what you do. That's wrong as well. That's engaging in sin. We're not going to transform society. I'm really sorry if you believe that. We're not, going to ch- we're not going to bring heaven on earth in this present evil age. The new heavens and new earth are going to come. We live in this age. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we seek to honor God as we deal with the issues that we face in it. All things shall be made new in the new creation, and we want the fullness of it. But we still have the not yet aspect of it in this present age in which we live. So what does God say? Do not love the world or the things in this world. We must watch and pray and fight that we might not be stained by the world. This is especially hard for parents, isn't it, to navigate these very things. I mean, so many sins and so many ideas are being propagated more freely and more openly these days. It's really hard to navigate those areas. Wisdom is greatly required by parents to navigate these present things. We must flee or must not love the world, flee from the sins of the world, yet still live and deal with the present age in which we live. But the command is clear. Don't love it. Don't prize it. Love the things that last forever more. And thankfully, he goes on to describe what we ought to be on guard against in verse 16 with the character of the world. And so we saw the command. Now we see the character. Verse 16, there are three things he highlights about what the world looks like. For all that is in the world, and he goes on to describe it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That first reference there, lust of the flesh, is probably the general reference that all men struggle with in sin. Then he goes on to some specifics with lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So we see lust of the flesh. The idea or the word used for lust there carries it with it this desire, this desire for something. Sometimes this word is used for things that are good. The Lord Jesus in Luke twenty-two fifteen, as he talks about the Passover, he says, I desire to take this Passover with you. He's using it in a positive way. But most of the time in the Bible, it is used in a negative sense. A desire for something forbidden, a desire for something that is inordinate, a craving or a lust. When man sinned, when Adam brought sin into this world, the intellect and the will have been corrupted. We've been clouded. We don't know that which is good. God made man upright to pursue that which is good according to what God has said. That has now been corrupted. So what do we do? We pursue things we think are good. And usually we pursue those things in a sinful sort of way. So he's describing it, this desire of the flesh, this desire of man's sinful nature. Flesh can also be used just to describe man. Describe man in his body. Describe man as one who is weak. But it is also used in God's word to describe that which is sinful. The lust of the flesh. That which comes out of that corruption we've been born into. That which comes out of the fact that we are born as a sinful people. The lust of the flesh. And notice, all three 
things of the Holy Trinity are here in close proximity, aren't they? We see how we've overcome the devil. And then he's talking about don't love the world. Then he talks about what's in the world, namely the lust of the flesh. All three are there. And what I tried to highlight last time is when we are battling against sin, when we are tempted to sin, it's probably hard for us to determine whether it's the devil, whether it's the world, or whether it's our own flesh. All three are working in tandem. And the reason I say that is sometimes we can blame the devil for our sins. You can't do that, dear brethren. We don't, the devil doesn't need us to sin. The devil doesn't need, uh, we don't, the people don't need the devil to do terrible things. But he just puts those things out there. He knows our proclivities without having to read our minds. And he, those things are thrown into our face. But all three are there. The one that is inward, the one that is always there, is the flesh. In 1 John five nineteen, he says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So all three are mentioned in close proximity. All three are mentioned in the book of 1 John to be on guard against all of those things. And perhaps the best thing is just to know what our sins are and to be on guard against those very things. We'll talk about that more um, as we go through. But the first thing is lust of the flesh. This desire of the sinful nature, this desire of sinful man is one way to characterize the world. Another way to characterize the world is that second reference, the lust of the eyes. Not just sexual desire, but things that the eyes are the gateway to the soul. The eyes can be, as Smalley says, that agent of perversion. The eyes are the window in which any desire enters in. Not just sexual, but even perhaps coveting. And coveting, there's many different things mentioned. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's house. Any of those things is descriptive of the lust of the eyes. Now think about it. As humans, how do we learn things? Well, it starts with our eyes, doesn't it? It starts with our ears. We hear something, we read something, we see something, our minds process what that is, our wills desire that, and then we choose whatever that thing we desire is. And so the eyes are very important. The lust of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the gateway uh, to man's soul. What a coveting is part of that. Coveting is part of that. We see something And because of the sinful flesh, because of being born in sin, man chooses that which is wicked. And certainly with the lust of the eyes, it's especially true in our social media age, isn't it? I mean, people see coveting, people see sanitized lives on Facebook and Twitter. And the other one I always say weird or get mixed up, TikTok or whatever it's called. People, People see other people's lives, but it's just sanitized, isn't it? And they lust after that. They covet that very thing. They want the life just like that. And what it does is it brings suffering and sorrow. The lust of the eyes is what characterizes the world. The lust of the flesh and the eyes are what draws those things into our souls. And then the soul and soul, namely the intellect and the will, move towards that which is not good. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes... And then the last thing we see is the pride of life. What characterizes the world? Sin, lust, 
and love of things that are going to pass. What he refers to here with life is probably possessions. Worldly possessions is what he's referencing here. Now, brethren, we're not against resources. We're not against getting good jobs. We're not against pursuing uh, and providing for one's families. As, uh, we're not against means of subsistence. However, notice it's the pride of life. It's legitimate to pursue means of subsistence, but what is the issue? Not recognizing where it comes from and making it to be a god. The pride of life. That's the problem. That is the issue that we see here. It's similar to what James says in James 14, 16. If John is the first, John is the book of assurance. James is the New Testament book of wisdom. He talks about how he says, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. But the context is in riches. Today or tomorrow we will go, into a, uh, go to such and such a city. Spend a year there. Buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. Those possessions shall pass. Your life in general is but nothing, is but a vapor. The things that one desires against God is going to pass away. And so it's taking the good things and making them a bad God. It's taking the good things God has given and created and given to us and making them an idol. The preacher in Ecclesiastes mentions similar sorts of things. Certainly, uh, uh, there's probably an allusion back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the pain, the sorrow of riches. We saw the juxtaposition as we went through that book. There's good things. There's nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy the benefits God has given. But riches only bring sorrow. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Or he who loves abundance with increase, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The, the more you gather, the more you eat, the more things are consumed. And all those possessions are, are things that you look at. Those things are not going to last. And later on in Ecclesiastes, he recognizes and says that adversity comes from the Lord and so does prosperity. Prosperity comes from the Lord. And if there's prosperity, you thank the Lord. But know as well that adversity comes from the Lord as well. The things we have, the things we possess, the things in this world are going to pass away. And what characterizes the world, according to verse 16, is love of these things. Love of things that do not last. Love and indulgence of sin in this present evil age. And he says, after he describes these three things, is not of the Father but is of the world. The world is hostile to God. Again, going with that definition we started with, and that's very clear with verse 16. And perhaps what these words indicate is source, not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of the world springs from a sinful heart. The desires of God, that God uh, springs from a heart that has been changed by God, we need a heart that has been changed, a heart that has been uh, an old heart that's taken out, the heart of stone, and we need a heart of flesh put in, Ezekiel chapter 36. This is what regeneration is. 
We need God to do that very thing. We need God to change one's heart. And from that flows out of the desires for the things of God, or at least should. Certainly, brethren, there's remnants of the old man that we wrestle against that. The spirit wrestles against the flesh. But if we've been changed, if we've received the word of life, if we have that new heart, we spring forth from the Father. And the evidence that we are found in the Father, the evidence that we are God's, is how, uh, it can be attested by our view of the things of this world. Do you appreciate what God has given to you? Do you appreciate what God has provided? Are you thankful? But yet, do you not cling to them? Are, th- are, they, are they things that are uh, hopefully not idols to you? Those are questions we need to ask. Does it come from the Father? Or does it spring out of this world in first john three thirteen, he says do not marvel my brethren if the world hates you we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren so we'll talk about that more when we get there but he's talking about again that ethical distinction he's talking about that age distinction those who are of the world and those who are of the father and i really am thankful that he speaks in this way Because it helps us understand what the world is, but also helps us understand what we have to deal with in our remaining corruption. See, one of the problems of these false teachers with their views on stuff, on matter, spirit good, matter bad. Remember, God created matter and it's good. Essentially, it still remains good ethically. You know, we are born in sin, but the makeup of body and soul is technically still good. We are made in the image of God. Uh, that doesn't change. It's been corrupted, but we are still made in the image of God. And so there are still good things in that sense. So we're not against matter like these false teachers were. And so they taught that their spirits could not be affected by their bodies. What is the implication with everything he's saying here? Sometimes in our remaining corruption, we can be affected by these things. That's why we have to be watchful and be on guard. That's why we have to understand that there's going to be temptations in this present evil age. That's why we have to understand there is the threat of the world, the devil, and the remaining corruption. I love God, A, because he saved me, and B, because he's a realist. He understands the struggles and trials that we have. And so he gives the commands, don't love the world. Because you and I, in our remaining, the remaining corruption we have, have this proclivity to love the world. Don't love it. Here's what it is. Here's what it looks like. Don't love these very things. And one thing we can say is that sin, and I'll explain this, is part of our tribulation. When we talk about suffering, we can describe suffering as sin and the effects of sin. This doesn't mean you get to excuse yourself. I'm sinning. I'm suffering. I can, you know, make excuses for what I'm doing. That's not what I'm saying. Someone is going to think that in this victim mentality culture that we live in. That's not what you can do. But nonetheless, what did Adam do when he sinned? He brought sin and misery into this present evil age. And God's people can still struggle with much sin. I mean, he says in chapter 2, 1, don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate. And so we must know our enemy. That's important. We must know our own temptations. That's probably more important because the temptations we have are what the enemy is going to use and what 
will be drawn into by the world. It helps us to be watchful and on guard. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It teaches us there's the reality of temptation. It teaches us what we ought to watch against. But thankfully as well, the whole book teaches us that we have our identity in Christ. Again, going back to 2, 1, and 2. Don't sin if you do. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Brethren, don't love the world. We have moments where you do and moments where you sin. There is Jesus Christ the righteous. And remember, he does not pray for the world, but he prays for his people, according to John 17. Or as he says in John 16, 33, Brethren, be of good cheer. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Or later on, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, You are of God, little children, and you have overcome the Antichrists, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Brethren, don't sin. Don't be tempted by the world. Don't love the world. But if you do, there is Christ, our advocate. He is the one we can look to, and he is the one who has overcome all sin and death and overcome the world. So that's the character of the world. Let's then look thirdly and finally at the end of the world, verse 17. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. Similarly, he says in 2.8, darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That is, this world is passing away and it shall be no more. These things of this world can never satisfy, as James says, life is but a vapor. The sad reality is people who are of the world, who've not been saved out of the world, love the things of this world and are trying to fulfill that eternal void, aren't they? In so many things, in sin, in possessions, Certainly we see that. That can be a good application from the things we've seen in verse 16. Certainly what's interesting is in Canada, Canada has the highest household debt of all the G7. Now I know there's runaway inflation. I know there was spending by the government that has caused inflation. I think that's okay for me to say, right? I mean, that's true. I'm not saying anything that's not untrue when I say that very thing. That's how we things inflate when there's more money in the system. I mean, it's just, you know, supply and demand sort of type of thought. But I understand all of those things. But could there not also be that people love things? That people want the latest iPhone? That people want the latest computer? That people want the latest car? That people are really living out of their means? They're, they're stretching themselves rather than going without. Because people want things now and think it will make them happy but these things in life are but a vapor and those things shall pass away this world is passing away and notice all the lust of it isn't that a wonderful thing for believers who still struggle with temptation that one day all those struggles and temptations shall be gone? This world is passing away and all the lusts of it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, all that shall be gone one, a day, uh, one day and it is passing away. It's a warning for unbelievers. One day this world shall pass away, but it's encouragement for believers Christ is bringing an end to these things and will bring an end to this unholy trinity. He's already triumphed. He's just doing cleanup now. That's what 2,000 years have been. 
I know that's a long time for us, but that's what 2,000 years is. It's cleanup for him. And if it goes another 2,000 years, it's still part of the cleanup as he's making his enemies his footstool. And we have already overcome in him. One writer says, present troubles do not compare to the victorious conviction that Christ has overcome the world. It is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The one who is in God, the one who is in the Father, and the one who does the will of the Father, one who has been saved by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the one who's been given the benefits of Christ, the one who has that new heart, the one who, even if not perfectly, desires to do what God says, there is an assurance there, isn't there? He who does the will of God abides forever. He who loves heavenly things, while not perfect, shall abide forever. And remember, that's why he's writing to these people, to assure them, to give them assurance, to give them encouragement. Even though there's this allure of the world, the things of God last forever. And if you believe on him and you desire to walk in his ways because you've been changed and saved, be assured these things shall remain forever. Smalley says, here's the culmination of the writer's appeal. Love of the world comes from the world and the world is transient. But love of the father comes from the father. And as the father is eternal, so is the life which he gives to the believer. It belongs to another dimension altogether, one which is permanent. The age to come is forever. The present evil age shall be no more. If you're in Christ, you are part of the age to come. When you gather on Sunday, we are coming to the age to come. We are not there yet, but we are coming to a consulate, an embassy, as we are making our way to that home. And the world we live in most of the week shall be gone one day. But these things shall last forever because Christ is eternal. Christ abides forever and those that are found in him shall abide forever. So brethren, don't love the world. Love Christ. Love the things that last forever. And if you're an unbeliever here today, the things that you loved shall not last forever, but they shall be burned up. The things that you desire, the things that you hope in, the things that you look to for satisfaction shall be burned up. But there is something that lasts, and that is being found in Christ Jesus. And if you believe on him, you shall be saved, and you shall have everlasting life. Brethren, don't love the world. Love Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask and pray that you would forgive us for taking the good things that you have made and making them bad gods. Please forgive us for taking good possessions that you've given to us and making them the pride of our life. And thank you so much that there is forgiveness for these sins that we have committed. Thank you so much that all of our sins in Christ Jesus are forgiven, past, present, and future, because of our great high priest. Thank you that we can go to him as poor, sensible sinners who struggle with much sin and we can be assured and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we ask as we Christians make our way to our heavenly home, as we are not there yet, we ask and pray that you give us wisdom in how we live in this present age. Help us not to love the world. Help us not to love the things of this world, but help us to love you. Help us to have a biblical perspective. Help us to have a theological perspective of things. 
Help us to grow in our understanding of your word, a growing understanding of what you have revealed and how we ought to live and navigate this fallen world. Wisdom is so much is lacking very much in your people, and we ask and pray that we would grow in wisdom, to know how to nuance, to know how to understand, know how to navigate various situations that arise. You have prayed, O Son, that the Father would not take us out of the world, but that he would keep us from the evil one. And so we ask and pray that you would keep us from the evil one. We ask and pray that you'd forgive us for our sins. Help us when we are tempted. Deliver us from those temptations. And we ask and pray as well that you'd help us not to love the world. If there are any here today who do not know you, show them how much they love the world. Show them the sinfulness of loving the world. Show them that this world shall not last. And we ask and pray that you'd show them the Lord Jesus Christ, who is eternal that in him is eternal life. He is eternal life, who is the Son of God. And may they find salvation and everlasting hope, and may they be found and long for the things that last forever. And we pray in all things you would be lifted high, in all things you would be glorified. Thank you so much for your grace and mercy to undeserving sinners like us. And we ask and pray that we would not love the world, but we would love the things of you. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close with a brief time meditation. Uh, Then I'm going to come up and pray.